Well, um, this morning I invite you to get your Bibles and turn to Exodus 20. Uh, we are going to be looking at the last of the Ten Commandments, and I hope that this has been a, a helpful season for you um, in God's Word, in particular in the book of Exodus. And I hope that the Ten Commandments have, have been refreshed in your mind or clarified in some ways that maybe they have been before. And to that end, we want to begin this morning by standing and just reading the whole of the Ten Commandments, um, and we'll land there on the last commandment, and that is our text for this morning. So if you would, stand Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 1, and I will read through verse 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, sh you or your son or your daughter your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land, and the Lord your God, though that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Lord, help us today as we now come and place ourselves under the, the preaching of your word. And Lord, may we be reminded that although there is a man who's opening his mouth to declare your truth, that it is your truth that is, uh, that is what you want us to uh, consider. That it, it is that truth, Lord, that sets us free and, and molds us and shapes us to be what you want us to be. So Lord, what we are not, would you make us? What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And allow me as your messenger, Lord, to be faithful uh, to declare your truth so that we can all grow uh, and, and pursue the, the things that you're calling us to. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, when we come to the Ten Commandments, it's good for us to approach them not simply in a, in a linear way, um, which we have done already, 
but also in a multi-dimensional way. And let me explain what I'm talking about. We've already noticed that there is a structure to the commandments. And we know that primarily because Jesus talks about the greatest commandment, and then, you know, that's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as well as to love your neighbor as yourself, right? Those two statements refer to the first four commandments and then the last six commandments, right? So there's, there's there's a structure there. That's already present. We also noted, though, that how the, the fifth commandment uses the word honor helps us to see the commandments in the following way. Uh, commandments 1 through 4, teach us to honor God. Commandment 5, to honor parents. Commandments uh, 6 through 10, to honor our fellow man. This is all part of the dynamic of what God is calling us to. What I want us to consider here now is that All the commandments are multidimensional. And what I mean by that is this. They're all vertical in some way. If you break a commandment, you are ultimately sinning against God, not just your fellow man, right? So they're all vertical in that sense. They're all horizontal because they're all to be lived out by a community. So although the first four may be vertical in nature, It is the community together that is seeking to be responsible with those commandments. So there's a horizontal nature. And as we are together in community, we want to make sure that we're encouraging one another to do that. So they're vertical. They're horizontal. They're also, however, internal. Because as we've seen so far, it's not just the behavior that's important. It's what's in the heart that matters. And Jesus certainly brings that out, doesn't he? As he brings his exposition on these Ten Commandments in Matthew 5 in particular through 7. But not only are they vertical, horizontal, and internal, they're also future-looking. These are being given to a newly formed nation. The people of Israel. The children of Israel now gather together to hear these commandments. And there's going to be more said about how these flesh out. But they are given to to say, this is how you are to live. This is how you're to pursue me. This is how life goes on in this nation that I'm creating. And also, they are intertwined. It's hard to break one commandment without breaking another commandment. And friends, that is so true, especially here with the 10th commandment, the commandment we're titling here, no coveting. Because it is a commandment that is dealing specifically with a sinful issue of the heart rather than a behavior. Let's read it one more time, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, simply put, what is this commandment about? What's it saying? The 10th commandment is a warning against the heart problem of coveting. See, of all the commandments here, this is the only one that's really really communicated as a heart issue. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he's only fleshing out what was already there in the Ten Commandments. That these are not just behaviors. They're behaviors that are the result of heart issues. 
but we see it specifically here in this commandment. In fact, Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, summarizes the problem in this way. He says to the Pharisees, take care and be on your guard. Sorry, to the disciples, he says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So even Jesus is now fleshing out this idea of covetousness. That, that people have, have distorted the, their passions and their desires. Now, friends, we're living in a consumer culture that is screaming at us to covet. You can't go a day without covetousness being pumped at you, right? Just turn on the TV and watch the commercials. Probably that's the time you go to the kitchen and get something. That's a good plan. But you, you watch those commercials, and you want... They want you to be dissatisfied with the product that you have and replace it with the one that they are advertising. So they want you to throw away your laundry detergent, right? You've seen the commercial before. They, they get two white T-shirts and they you know, throw a jar of ragu on each of them, right? And they look at these T-shirts. Here's your old one and here's the new improved one. And then they, they wash it and they put it out there. And of course, the, the one that you are using with your detergent, it comes out and it's got a stain on it. Apparently, I never had white clothes ever with my old detergent. But now with this newly improved one, the, the, the T-shirt actually comes out whiter than it was when it was brand new. It's amazing. The goal is to get you agitated and think that what you have is inferior so that you will buy their product. And friends, now in our computer age, we're inundated with this even more. You know, I remember one time I was searching for luggage because I wanted to get some luggage for my kids for Christmas. And it's like for the next month, all I had were advertisements coming at me from all different places about luggage, 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 luggage. They know you were interested in it. Google somehow figured that out. Or Amazon had it somehow in their memory, and you could be on whatever website, and all of a sudden, boom, here's an ad about that luggage you were looking for a month ago. They just want to make sure that you remember that you are interested in that luggage, and maybe, possibly, if you just click this link, you can buy it. It's all there. You need this luggage. They know you want that 27-inch Samsonite hardback spinner, and they're going to remind you about it because they want you to buy it. I'm also reminded of the well-known story of Aladdin. If you remember in the story, there are a number of characters, and it's, it's like they all are struggling with covetousness. Jafar, although he's the royal vizier, I mean, he's so high in the organization there. He's the trusted advisor of the sultan, but he is not satisfied with that. He wants to be the sultan. Then you have Aladdin. He's the street rat. He just wants a better life until he sees Jasmine. Then he wants Jasmine, right? Then you have Jasmine. She's the princess. She has all these things available to her, but she just wants freedom. And then, of course, there's the genie. Genie, he just, he just is happy to be free if someone could set him free, but that would never happen, right? But, oh, wouldn't it be great to be free? And then, of course, there's the classic scene where Abu the monkey, and he's there in the, the cave of wonders, and he's been told, don't touch anything, and he's like looking at the jewels, right? I'm attracted by the jewel. 
I mean, the whole story is about poisoning, uh, the poisoning nature of covetousness. So, friends, this morning, we want to look at the Tenth Commandment under three headings. Covet, coveting explained, coveting opposed, and coveting counseled. So, coveting explained. And uh, I'm going to talk here about what it's not, what it is, and then what it does. So, let's think first about what, what it's not. Now, normally it's not good in a sermon to talk about what something is not because we're more interested in what it is. But when we have confusion in our thinking and our culture, it's helpful then to kind of lay out what it's not. So let's consider now what coveting is not. The word covet is a Hebrew word that simply means desire. In other words, it's a natural word. By itself, it's not a bad word. So it's not a prohibition about or against desires. Scripture tells us in many places that our desires can be a good thing. Neither is it a prohibition against having feelings or even strong feelings for something. God has given us feelings for a purpose. Now just consider these desires or, or feelings that Scripture talks about. The first one I'm going to just bring to attention here is God's Word. We're, we're told in Psalm 1 and in many other places Delight yourself in the law of the Lord. That's a desire. That's coveting. That's wanting something. I want to delight myself in the law of the Lord and in his law to meditate on it. And then Hebrews chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Here's what it says. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, there's a desire for Christian maturity. That's a right desire. First Timothy tells us if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. It's a good desire. Now, just because you have a desire doesn't mean that you get to fulfill that role because you may not be qualified, but that desire is a good desire. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 20 says this, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. This is the desire of Christian fellowship. This is the desire that we have coming together, spending time as the body of Christ, you know, uh, exercising the, 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 um, uh, you know, the, the ordinances of Lord's Supper and baptism or even the preaching of the word and singing songs together. We desire, we long for that. And then Philippians 1-2, the Apostle Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. It's okay to desire heaven. Now, I'm, I'm belaboring this because I want us to make, under, make sure we understand that having a desire isn't necessarily sinful. It's neutral. Having feelings isn't necessarily bad. There are some religions out there that want you to strip away any feelings, any desires, so you can get to this perfect landing place of nothingness. That is not Christianity. God wants us to have desires. They're not evil in and of themselves, but they need to be guided and shaped by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. So we're not here being called to suppress our desires. 
or our emotions. That's what it's not. Now let's think about what it is. And again, let's look at the verse, this commandment one more time and think about it carefully and come to some conclusions. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, friends, it's talking here about a specific heart attitude in a specific context. So let's think through this, but let's think through this in a little bit more of a modern-day context. First of all, it's talking about your home. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. This is the person who's there coveting his neighbor's house, and they're thinking, look at the neighborhood where they live. I wish I could live there where it's safe and the neighbors care about cutting the grass or they all have three-car garages. And look at the stuff they have, that basketball hoop, the in-ground pool, the view of the bay. And look at that backyard. Man. And when they open up their garage, you see all the things that are there, all sorts of tools, exercise equipment, shelving, and neatly spaced bins. Oh, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be fantastic to have that kind of home? I'm so tired of living in my neighborhood. Why can't, live in a, why can't I live in a better neighborhood where people care about their homes? Well, what about your marriage? It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Man, she is beautiful. It's as if she doesn't change a bit. I wish I had married someone like her or like him. My marriage would be so much better. Look at the husband. He's always doing work around the house, crossing off the wife's to-do list playing with the kids, cutting the grass, washing the car. Why am I stuck with my husband? Why am I stuck with my wife? I wish I had my neighbor's spouse. Your home, your marriage, your abundance. You shall not covet your neighbor's male servants, female servants, his ox or his donkey. This is all language in that culture that communicated prosperity. I'm... I'm always driving this junky car, but my neighbors seem to have a new SUV every couple of years. They always seem to be getting away, going skiing, going to Hawaii, going to Disneyland when they can, but we're lucky if we can get away to Santa Cruz. These are the things that are happening in our hearts. My neighbors changed job a few times, they're thinking. They've moved from Apple to Genentech to to Facebook, and I'm stuck with this job that seems to be going nowhere. Their kids always seem to have what they need. Even their dog gets a grooming every other week. Why can't we just have some of the abundance and the blessing of what they have? Ever thought thoughts like that? You might not have communicated them, but you've thought them. They're in your heart. And, of course, the, the, the verse says at the end, or anything that is your neighbor's, that just kind of is like a Pandora's box, isn't it? And I'm here saying it's, it's your life. My neighbors, they're so smart, but I'm not. 
They have good investments, but I hardly have anything. They seem to, to be a normal, loving family, but my family is so full of conflict and crisis. They have so many friends, but I hardly have any. Their life seems to come so easily to them, but my life always seems so hard. Oh, I wish I could be like them. I wish I could have their abundance. I wish I could have their life. So this is the sense of what's going on with verse 17. This is the sense of what's happening with this 10th commandment, all right? So let's summarize all of these things. First of all, sinful coveting takes place when we want for ourselves what belongs to someone else. Sinful coveting takes place when we want for ourselves what belongs to someone else. Or to put it a little differently, coveting longs for someone else's stuff to be your stuff. So you look at their brand new car, and you're like, I want that. Why can't I have that? Rather than saying, hey, good for them. That's fantastic you've got a new car. Good for you. I know you've got to get back and forth to work, and you've got to take care of your family and get in the places. You've got a good, dependable car. I'm really happy for you. No, in your heart you're saying, well, that's nice, but I wish I had that. And how come they get to get that and I don't? And it's all taking place in the arena of your heart. In fact, this sinful coveting can be present, and no one around you knows that it's raging. Why? Because it's in the privacy of your heart. It lurks in your soul, and it whispers in your ear, that's not fair. What makes them so special I deserve the same, if not more. They're just privileged. They should give me some of what they have. This is all the language of coveting. So that's what it's not, what it is. But now let's consider what it does. If simple coveting takes place when we long for someone else's stuff to be our stuff, then first of all, coveting violates the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth commandments. (laughs) Coveting leads to adultery, to murder, to stealing, and will be willing to give a false witness. You see, it's, it's the place where all this begins. Murder doesn't just happen, friends. Adultery doesn't just happen. Stealing something doesn't just happen. Giving false testimony doesn't just happen. There are things that are happening in the heart that are motivating someone to do those things. So coveting not only violates those commandments, it also violates the second commandment. When you covet, you embrace an idol that takes the place of you relying on God. I have to have this, which means I'm not relying on God. God. So this idol is the result of you allowing a good desire to turn into a sinful desire. You've heard this before. Something that you're willing to sin to get, that's what an idol is, or something that brings you sin when you can't get it. So coveting violates 
6th, 7th, 8th, ninth commandment as well as the second commandment. Secondly, coveting hurts the community. If you remember, the last six commandments are horizontal and are described by Jesus as the commandments that express your love for your neighbor. And friends, covetousness is a poison that will cause great harm to any community. It creates an attitude of the haves and the have-nots. In fact, what we see is that politicians love to use covetousness to rouse the masses against those who have Why do the 1% get to have what they get? And look at what we have. And of course, the information is always distorted. It's it's there to, to, to create in you this disenfranchised attitude that they shouldn't have what they have. Well, maybe there's some truth to people being in that position who have money, who have gotten it by the wrong means, or maybe they've actually just been really, really good at what they do. But God will have none of that. Such talk and behavior like that runs contrary to what the scripture says. So coveting violates the commandments. Coveting hurts the community. Coveting also hinders your walk. Friends, it poisons your heart so that you stop thinking about what God wants. It causes you to only look out for yourself and not others. It draws you away from loving others as yourself. The bottom line, friends, in all of this is it takes you to a place where your love for God and your love for your fellow man is eclipsed by your love for self. And so it's no surprise that this is at the end of the Ten Commandments. Because when it comes down to it, It's not your behavior that ultimately matters. It's not your behavior that is the real battleground. It's what's going on in your heart. So let's coveting explain. It's what it's not, what it is, and what it does. Now, coveting opposed. Rather than saying, you shall not covet, I want to suggest to you that what we should be saying, the opposite or the positive side of the command is, you shall be content. So at the heart of covetousness is a heart that is discontent with God. God, you haven't given me this, therefore I'm going to have to go out and get it myself. Friends, covetousness has become an idol. Contentment, friends, is the opposite of covetousness. And unfortunately for us, it is also the antidote to covetousness. Unfortunately for us, being content with what we have is usually as difficult, if not more difficult, than avoiding covetousness. Because you don't have to think about coveting. You just naturally covet. You naturally get sucked in, and it takes the hard work of maturity and Christ-likeness to fight against that and to be content. Contentment is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, the word isn't used there, but it's related to the idea of peace. And when we're bearing the fruit of this peace or this contentment, we are at peace with God 
and we're also at peace with our circumstances. I mean, you think it's about someone like Deborah Wright, who, while she was going through her cancer, was very much at peace with what God had given her. If you ever interacted with her, that was the case. She wasn't fighting against it. She was pursuing God in the midst of it. Now, I know she wasn't perfect, and she would be the first to acknowledge that, but that was the orientation of her heart. That's where her spiritual weather vane was pointing. And friends, that should be true for us, to be content. But being content doesn't come naturally, like I said. It's, it's a matter of applying the hard work of the truth of God's word to fight against our flesh. And so we wrestle our hearts away from fighting um, against the sinful idolatry of our heart so that we are fully at peace, resting in and content with all that God has given us. Now, we all know that life will always be coming at us with a variety of challenges for us then to be discontent and to covet. And so we, we, we must not be passive. If we are passive, we will become victims of our own covetous hearts. If we fight, though, if we're active, we can put covetousness away and find contentment with God in Christ. Let me just explain what I mean by those words, active and passive. And maybe just use a, a baseball analogy to help you understand. If I'm a, a batter coming up to bat and the pitcher's throwing the ball at me, to be active is I'm seeing where the ball is coming, I'm watching the flight, and I'm making a swing appropriate to however the ball is, is flying, and I'm seeking to hit the ball and to knock it somewhere, right? That's being active. Being passive is the pitcher throws the ball, and I have the bat, and I'm just kind of like letting the ball hit the bat, and the bat then falls out of my hand. I'm just like not really interested in counteracting. I'm not interested in doing anything. It's just, it's just going to happen. And we might actually equate the fact that, that maybe the person who's active hits the ball, but the person who's passive, it still hits the ball, but the same things are not happening. And God is calling us in our Christian walk not to be passive, but to be active, to anticipate what's happening, and then to be able to counteract that with the things that he says are the means of that counteraction. In this case, we counteract covetousness with contentment in him. So let's think about contentment. I will invite you to get your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. I'm calling this contentment the crown jewel. Philippians chapter 4. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in verses 11 through 13. I'm sure you're familiar with verse 13. It's often misquoted because there's a context to it. But here, here's what Paul says. Philippians 4.13. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, the all things is referring back to in every circumstance, being brought low, and abounding, what is the key? What is the, the one thing that holds that together? I've learned to be content. 
I've learned to trust God. I've learned to allow myself to settle with his providence for my life. So this is why Paul is saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If we want to use it in the modern vernacular, here's what it is. You know, the basketball player gets up. It's Steph Curry, right? He's got the verse on his shoes, right? He's standing there ready to shoot. I can do all things through Christ. I can do all things through Christ. Paul is saying, I might stand there and miss. And that's okay because I'm content. (laughs) It's not saying I can do, I can do. He's saying, I'm content, therefore I can face whatever is before me. I hope that makes sense to you. So he's telling us that the crown jewel of facing life's difficulties and blessings is contentment that is rooted in Christ. I can do all things through Christ. It is the contentment that comes as a result of Christ being the Lord and master of my life. So contentment isn't trusting in your own ability. Contentment isn't trusting in your own stuff, all the things that you have. Contentment isn't trusting in government, a particular party, or a particular politician. No, Paul is saying that the anchor to this crown jewel of contentment is none other than Christ. So contentment, the crown jewel. Secondly, contentment, the humble truth. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul leans on this 10th commandment in Romans chapter 7. I would invite you to turn there, Romans chapter 7. You know, we learn a lot about the 10 commandments from how, how, how other scripture points back to the commandments, right? And here the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 and verses 7 through 12 says the following. And he's talking here about how the 10th commandment changed his life. It reveals his sinfulness. Here's what he says. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. You get that? For I would not have known that it is is, um, what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So what's happening is he's, he's seeing the law, and the law is, is, is he's, he's looking at himself in the light of the law, the reflection of the law, and he's seeing sin, sin, sin. And he's seeing the sin of covetousness all around. Then he says, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. In other words, you're not going to see it sin unless it's held up against the law. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very uh, commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, uh, and, and through it killed me. So the law, I mean, and, you know, you might read this language and say, man, this is all the rough stuff he's going through. But notice what he says here in conclusion. So the law is holy... The commandment is holy and righteous and good. So what's he saying here? Paul was a Pharisee, and as such, he had given his life to the law. And as he strived to keep the law, he saw how the law brought him to his knees to expose not simply his external behavior, but the sin that's in his heart. 
And that exposure brought about by the law, he says, is holy and righteous and good. Why? Because it was only through the law that he could see his sinful heart. And that's why later Paul said, would say this of covetousness, that it's idolatry. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, here's the, here's, see, here's the humble truth. The law exposes the sin in our heart, and when that sin is exposed, it can be dealt with by the grace of God. Without the law, we don't see our sinfulness, and so no grace is actually meted out to us. And Paul is thankful that the law exposed his heart. So, what does Paul mean by covetousness being idolatry? He's saying a good desire can very quickly become coveting when we desire the wrong things. So we might look at our neighbor's husband and think to ourselves, wow, he's a really nice man. I'm glad for my neighbor to have such a friendly husband. It's, a, it's great to have kind and friendly neighbors. It's another thing to think, I wish he was my husband. Maybe he would, we would have some kindness and friendliness in our home then. The idolatry of covetousness is the fruit of poisoning good desires with evil thoughts and giving way to those sinful desires so that they bear fruit. And friends, that's what James says in his letter. If you remember when we walked our way through James last year or two years ago, here's what James says, James 1.15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So in the case... In this case, death is the idolatry of covetousness. There is a, there's a, a desire that gives birth to sin, and then that sin gives birth to death. Here's idolatry of covetousness. It comes as a result of this process. And friends, probably one of the most famous biblical examples of this sin comes from the book of Joshua in chapter 7. I want to encourage you to turn there. We're not going to read the whole section, but in this chapter, Joshua chapter 7, we find the story of a man by the name of Achan. And if, just to kind of give you some context, the people of Israel have come into Canaan, the promised land, and they've been conquering as they go. And they've come to Jericho, and they've marched around Jericho 13 times and finally defeated them. And now they're looking to capture the city of Ai, A-I, it's pronounced Ai. But since it was a small city, they said, you know what, we only need maybe 3,000 men. It'll be an easy fight. Let's go and do that. They go up to do battle, and as a result of the battle um, against Ai, 36 of their men die, and they are, they're defeated in battle, and they, they get back and they escape, but 36 men are lost. And the Lord had given Joshua and the people of Israel some strict instructions about not taking any of the plunder for themselves. I was under what's called the ban. And the plunder was then to, to go uh, into the temple or to the tabernacle, but it was not to be something that people were to take for themselves. 
But as the story unfolds, it becomes clear that their defeat was due to the sin of one man, one, one man and his name is Achan. And here's what Achan reveals when he's confronted by Joshua, and this is verse 21. And I want you to read this in light of James 1.15. He says, When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 2,000 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold waving 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So just like James reveals here, with Achan, coveting began with his eyes when I saw. It went deeply into his mind and heart. Then I coveted them and ended up in his hands. He took them. And friends, the end result was death. Not just Achan's death, but the death of his whole family, including his livestock. In other words, everything in his household. His contentment was challenged by a seed of temptation that bore fruit and uh, bore fruit with discontentment that led to him acting out his covetousness. Friends, covetousness is a silent killer. It blinds the individual to everything he has and only allows the individual to see what they don't have. Now, you know what it's like, right? You've just got something new, and then three, four months later, they come out with the, the latest version of what you just got. And now you're like, oh, well, maybe I need to get rid of my old new thing and get the latest update. I mean, you know, think about if you have an iPhone, just think about that. I mean, as soon as you buy the thing, it's already obsolete, right? Because the next one's coming out just a few months later, and it's got all these bells and whistles that you're not going to have, right? It's that whole thing. But this is how it works. So this is contentment, the humble truth. Paul is recognizing that contentment is necessary to see the reality of what's going on in his heart. The exposure of that sinful heart is the humble truth. The question is, can you face the humble truth of your covetousness? And can you face the humble truth of the battle and the struggle you have to be content? Third, contentment, the complement to godliness. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, of course, Timothy, you know, was his young pastor that Paul raised up and trained for ministry, sent him to a number of places, ultimately to Ephesus, which is where he is now. And he speaks to him in the context of talking about false teachers who he describes here as depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Unfortunately, friends, there are many in the church today who see godliness as a means of gain. In other words, fleshing out some Christian religion as a means of gain. And of course, it was an early form of what we would today call the prosperity gospel that was present in the church. That if you pray, if you read your Bible, if you attend church, that God will multiply uh, blessing heaped upon blessing and you will have great health, you will have great wealth. 
if we've learned anything from 2020, it's that the prosperity gospel is a lie. Now, the Apostle Paul here challenges and encourages Timothy with these words. And this is verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And he clarifies it here by saying, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So I hope you see what's happening here. Paul is saying godliness and contentment go hand in hand. A truly godly person is a, is a person who understands that the things of life do not last. They may be attractive, they may be alluring, but there will always be something bigger and better. There's a story of, a, of a, uh, an ancient Persian by the name of Al-Hafed who owned a very large farm with all sorts of, uh, of orchards and grain fields and gardens. He was a wealthy, contented man. But there was a wise man that came to visit him from the east, and he told this farmer about uh, these things called diamonds. And if you owned a diamond farm then you would actually be rich, far richer than you are right now. And Al-Hafed went to bed that night, a poor man, poor because he was discontented. Now craving this mine of diamonds, he sold his farm and he went in search. He traveled the world and finally becoming poor, broken and defeated, he committed suicide. But one day... When the man who purchased his farm was out uh, watering his, his camels, they went to a brook, and as he was in the brook, he saw something in that brook that was flashing with light, and he pulled out that diamond, and it reflected all the hues of the rainbow, and that man had discovered the diamond mine of Golconda, the most magnificent mine in all history. And here's the point. If Ali Hafed remained at home and dug in his own garden, then instead of death in a strange land, he would have had acres of diamonds. You see, covetousness wants you to look outside of what you have for joy and for satisfaction. Contentment says, I'm going to find joy and satisfaction with what I have, as meager as it is. Discontentment makes rich men poor, while contentment makes poor men rich. Because it's all about the attitude of the heart. It's all about your perspective on things, right? So friends, it's important then that we oppose covetousness with contentment. Now point number three coveting counseled. If, if coveting is a challenge for us, and it is, if, it, if it's pummeled at us in so many different ways, and it is, then what can we do? Well, I thought of four, four ways that I would counsel someone, I would encourage someone, I would try to help someone think through a battle plan, so to speak, against coveting. The first thing I would suggest is this. It's a heart of gratitude, a heart of gratitude for what God has given you. It's so easy to give in to the lure of comparing your life 
your circumstances, your abundance or lack thereof to those around you. But it's always good to take a fresh look at what God has already given you and to be thankful. I find this experience when I travel to different places around the world that when, I, when I'm done with my journeys and the work that's been done, because most of it's missions work, that I return, and when I, when I step on American soil, I'm just like, ah, I'm thankful. Now, I realize there's lots of things in our country, especially more recently, that we're just like shaking our head at. But there's still something about our country that's wonderful, that's a blessing. And that doesn't mean that this is God's country. It just means that we're, we're fortunate to leave, live in a country like ours where the rule of law is, is, is typically meted out, where you can find safety, you can find help. It's always good to come home. A man once complained about the, the sorry shoes that he had. They were old, they were scuffed up, and they didn't go with his outfits and then he saw a man with no feet. See, it's all perspective. A man became envious of his friends because they were all selling their homes and, and buying up and getting larger and more luxurious homes. And so he listed his house with a real estate firm, planning to sell it and purchase a, a more luxurious, more impressive home. Shortly afterward, he was reading the classified section looking for a home to purchase, and he saw in the newspaper uh, a house that seemed just right for him. And so he, he called that realtor and said, a house described in today's paper is exactly what I'm looking for. I would like to go through it as soon as possible. Well, the agent asked him a number of questions and then replied, but sir, that's your house that you're describing. See, sometimes we're, so, we're looking somewhere else rather than being thankful for what we already have. And maybe we need to take a fresh look at what God has blessed us with and rejoice over it. So look at your home, look at your spouse, look at your children, your job, your life, your abundance, maybe even your dog, and be thankful. Have some gratitude. These are all gifts from the Lord, right? And we should turn to him with thanksgiving. So gratitude. Secondly, I think another, I would say, attitude of the heart or characteristic that would be helpful in counteracting covetousness would be not just gratitude, but stewardship. If God has given you all these gifts, he's given you all these gifts for you to steward, in other words, all that you have has been given by God to you, but they all belong to the Lord, and he's entrusted you then to be the steward of them. So your house, it belongs to the Lord. Your spouse and your kids, they belong to the Lord. Your friends, they belong to the Lord. Your social media, it belongs to the Lord. Your money, it belongs to the Lord. Your time, it belongs to the Lord. And one of the ways we fight against coveting is to take on that stewardship seriously for the glory of God. And that doesn't just involve things I just mentioned. It also involves stewarding your spiritual growth. Are you taking the priority of being in his word? God has given you his church. Are you present? Well, obviously you're here, but this is only part of the package 
God has given you new life. Are you being a good steward with it? See, all these areas are to be under the control and the guidance of our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Before the gospel breathed life into your soul, you were in bondage, you were enslaved to sin. But you were made alive through Jesus Christ. And now you have a new master. You had a master before, it was sin. Now you have a new master, and it's Christ. But he's a good master. He's a trustworthy master. He's a master that can help you and, 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 and encourage you and guide you. My friends, there was one day when uh, a, a, a Quaker was leaning over his fence watching a new family pull into a home next door. and They were un, unloading all the things from the truck into the house. They had all kinds of modern appliances, electronic gadgets, plush furniture, and costly wall hangings. They carried them all in. And then the onlooker called over and said, if you find you're lacking anything, neighbor, let me know. And I'll show you how to live without it. You see? I think sometimes we can, in our stewardship, say, what can we do without? What can we get rid of? Do we really absolutely have to have that thing? And stewardship helps us to answer some of those questions, doesn't it? Is this something that God would have me pursue? All right. In other words, you know, do I need that new car? Do I need this new thing? I, I don't know, but let's steward that under the guidance of the Lord. So gratitude, stewardship. Number three, oneness or unity. So oneness or unity with the person or persons God has given you. So I'm, I'm, I'm referencing here as this neighbor looks and he is coveting his neighbor's wife. Or as we think about coveting what, uh, what maybe our neighbors have. Well, the first thing here is unity. God calls you to love your neighbor as yourself. And remember, that's a, a blanket statement about all these last six commandments. And to love one another is to seek to live in unity with them all. It is to seek peace with them. And that's what Romans 12, 18 says. If possible, so far as it depends on you... Live peaceably with all. That's what Albert read this morning as we began. And Scripture recognizes that people will be diverse, but it calls us to seek unity with that diversity. I'm not going to read it all, but you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 18, and the Apostle Paul talks about the body having many parts, and he talks about you know, the eye and, and the ear. He talks about the hand and the foot. And his point is this, that we, we all have diff- we're all different parts of that body. We can't all be a hand. We can't all be a foot. We can't all be an eye. We can't all be an ear. And we shouldn't. It would be a strange body if that were true. So we recognize the diversity of the body, and we celebrate that by pursuing unity together with that diversity. But then there's this oneness. And here I'm talking specifically about the context of marriage. Our society is constantly luring people to look outside of their marriages to find excitement and satisfaction. But friends, it's a lie. Don't go there. God calls you to delight in your own husband and wife. The Song of Solomon, chapter 2, 
in verses 3 through 6 says, says this. I'll just let it speak for itself, right? It's poetic language. So hear the poetry in it. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was, my, was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me is love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. He left, uh, his left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. Look, friends, what Scripture is telling us to do is, is, is to, to enjoy the wife or the husband of your youth. And so easy for the world to want to pull us away, but reignite that relationship that God has already placed you in. Pursue it, restore it, love it, embrace it. So gratitude, stewardship, um, oneness and unity. And the fourth thing here is discipleship. You know, this is, a, this is a blanket statement. It's a very, very large statement. But one, one person has said, well, be content with what you have, but never with what you are. Discipleship is a pursuit toward holiness. Again, it's a pursuit. It means we're, we're doing something. We have a goal. We're going somewhere. God has declared us holy through what Christ has done for us on the cross. He's declared us holy. That is what we are in his sight. He paid for our sins, and we are now forgiven and holy in his eyes. But discipleship is the practical pursuit of becoming what God has already accomplished for us. So he declares us holy, and then he says, now be holy. And what he's saying there is, I want you to pursue what you already are. And the pursuit doesn't happen overnight. The pursuit takes time. It's a lifetime pursuit. And so discipleship requires hard work. And if we're going to fight against the lure of covetousness and to embrace contentment, it will only come if we're actively engaged in a growing discipleship. This is what Paul says. Train yourself toward godliness. That word train literally means exercise, spiritual sweat. It takes spiritual sweat to pursue godliness. He also says, that, that was 1 Timothy 4, 7. He says in Philippians 3, 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, my son was just talking about he and his friends, you know, hiked Mission Peak. I don't know if anyone here hiked Mission Peak. When you hike a place like that, you don't look at the peak. You just look ahead of you. you, and you, you when you get there, you're like, oh, this is so great. But, man, the journey's hard. And, and we're called, yeah, okay, you know what, look toward heaven, but just know that you're in the journey, and you're not going to snap and get to heaven unless the Lord takes you home. You're, you're, this is going to be the steady journey that you're on. That's what discipleship looks like for us. And it's interesting, in verse 15, he says, that's how mature people should think. That's my paraphrase of it. Again, Paul says in Philippians 2 and 12, the latter part, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
The salvation he's been talked about there is discipleship. It's that, it's that sanctification. You are to be working it out. You are to be working hard, uh, exercising your Christian disciplines, your spiritual disciplines in that pursuit of discipleship. And friends, this should be something that as a body we are encouraging one another with. And certainly individually we're pursuing ourselves, but we want to encourage and stimulate one another to these things. So gratitude, stewardship, oneness and unity, discipleship. Bringing this to a, a close, there's a story about this rich industrialist who um, was at, an, at, at the ocean, and he was disturbed to find a fisherman lazily sitting in his boat. And he says, why aren't you out there fishing? And the fisherman said, because I've caught enough fish for today. And so he responded, why don't you catch more fish than you need? Well, the fisherman says, well, what would I do with them then? And so the industrialist said, you could earn more money. You could buy a bigger boat so you could go deeper and catch more fish. You could purchase nylon nets, catch even more fish and make more money so you can have a fleet of boats and be rich like me. The fisherman asked, well, then what would I do? And the man says, you could sit down and enjoy life. And he says, well, what do you think I'm doing now? See, the problem is covetousness lures us that what we have is insufficient, therefore we have to, we have to go. And what it does is it takes us away from enjoying life now because I can't enjoy life now because I have to have this. Now, friends, I want to encourage you to look long and hard at the sin of coveting and to see how dangerous, deceptive, and destructive it is and to make sure that the work of the gospel on your heart is moving you to be content with all that God has given you and to enjoy life. On a human level, friends, we will always have less than other people. There will always be someone who has more than you, something better, something greater, something flashier. On a kingdom level, Scripture says we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. You and I cannot get richer in kingdom terms. So in this world, settle where God has placed you. Settle your circumstances. That doesn't mean you can't get a new job and you can't pursue different things, but it's like, don't allow yourself to be sucked in by the sin of covetousness that you lose contentment with the wonderful gifts that God has given you. Lord, help us today to consider this challenge, Lord, from the Ten Commandments. Lord, it's so easy for us to be people who covet. Lord, may we do the due diligence to fight against that temptation. And Lord, to be content 
with the things that you give us. Lord, not passively, but, but actively being content, seeing those things as gifts from you and things to enjoy and to rejoice over. Lord, help us to see our walk with you as not simply behaving in certain ways, keeping rules and regulations, or somehow fitting into the culture that a particular church or Christian culture has, but Lord, to, to have a heart that is walking with you, that is pursuing you, that is, that is thankful, that is being a faithful steward of what you've given us, Lord, that is seeking unity and oneness, and Lord, is eagerly active in discipleship, Lord. Um, it's so easy for us to be distracted in this world and to forget why you've even placed us here. So Lord, help us now to be honest, to be humble, to be teachable, and Lord, to be shaped by your truth. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.